Welcome to What Else? My guest on this episode is B.A., my beloved friend since childhood, and a smart, inventive, thoughtful, thought-provoking guy. So I hope you'll enjoy listening to him talk. Uh, Before we get started, I want to thank the Chicago Podcast Cooperative for hooking up our sponsorships. If you want to learn more and possibly become a sponsor yourself, you can check them out at chicagopodcastcoop.com. And this episode is sponsored by the terrific people at Cards Against Humanity. And they asked us not to read an ad. So enjoy the show. One other note, this discussion actually lasted longer than originally anticipated. So we're going to break it into two separate episodes. So this will be BA part one and part two will be released a little bit later. So let's bang a gong and enjoy BA. Welcome to this episode of What Else? And my guest today is BA. You want to say hello? You can say hello. hello. Here it's a pleasure want. to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So, uh, for if someone's listening out there, BA and I have been uh, best friends for about 40 years. Um, and I try not to, I think my thing on this show is to try not to um, do too much characterization of a person in advance, you know, not to give too much of a summary or put them in a box. Um, Cause my goal is a little bit not to just necessarily talk about, what people are known for, what they do for a living or something like that. So we'll just say that you're BA. I'm BA and we've been friends a long time. So we should be able to talk to each other fairly well. We'll find out. Let's find out. Um, so I, we have obviously known each other through many phases of life and you've had different um, pursuits along the way from being a student, to being in the military, to having office jobs, to being a musician and doing other things and stuff. Uh, so one of my questions is, do you, maybe career-wise, but maybe just life-wise, are you a person who has a plan or have you had plans? How do you view yourself in that way? Well, when I started out, I very much avoided having a plan and um, very much didn't want to lock myself into anything. As like most people, I think, as I got older, I had more of a plan. Um, I definitely early on like to just kind of um, burn some bridges and change everything. I had often an urge to do that and throw myself into a more uncomfortable situation or start over. Um, now I crave stability a lot more. Can I ask you a little about that? So was it that you wanted to burn the bridges and as a consequence, you ended up in some other kind of situation or you wanted to get to the other situation? And so burning the bridges seemed like a good way to get you there. Um, I think that I was a lot less happy when I was younger and 
I would try and get a fresh start to try and kind of jumpstart some kind of, um, I don't know if I'd call it like depression, like clinical depression. I don't think I was ever really there, but I think I had issues that um, kept me stuck and unhappy. And I would think that if I could just get to something else, you know, get a do-over, that it might be better. And I also think at the same time I would cling to the sameness. And so I think I would try and sabotage whatever it was in myself that was clinging to the sameness by forcing myself out of a situation or when I had the courage to make a big change, make that big change and burn all the bridges knowing that if I did it slowly or work towards it, that I would regret it Hmm. and try and, you know, go back. So I think I would try and throw myself into something so that it was difficult to turn around and go back. I see. Did you, do you think that that, the approach of trying to clean the slate, did that work for you or work at points for you? Definitely. Definitely. I think, can you give some, like, is there an example of one, uh, a scenario where that you felt like it was effective or not? Um, Well, joining the army. Okay. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So I was um, 18 and I was not really driven to do anything particular. Um, I was kind of against a lot of stuff. I didn't want to be at home. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to, I didn't have money to be at college. I didn't know if I really wanted to be at college didn't want to finish high school. Um, but I didn't have anything that I necessarily did want to do. Uh, as a kid, you know, I was maybe more self-destructive than many of my peers, maybe less self-destructive than a lot of, um, disassociated kids of the high school variety. Mm hmm. Um, at some point, you know, I had some adventures, I did some stuff. Um, it always seemed to end up with me having to find housing and seek shelter and, you know, that kind of mundane stuff that I was trying to avoid in life. Mm -hmm. And then at some point there was, you know, winter looming, all my friends were going off to college other than just kind of hanging around and finding places to crash, I didn't really have anything much going on. And I don't really even remember forming the idea of joining the army. I kind of remember talking to some recruiters, but I would imagine that I had already decided to do it before then. I remember I had kind of looked at um, the different services. And at that point, I was, you know, very into music and the idea that I was a musician and that was my identity and that was what I wanted to do. But um, I kind of looked at the audition process for the Air Force particularly and I also talked about it with the Army and the Navy. And somewhere in that process, I decided that I didn't want to combine the two things of the military Mm -hmm. 
and my alleged musical career. And um, at that point, I decided not to try and get into the army band program to just do something that wasn't that because that would somehow ruin music for me. Right. Interesting. Um, You know, like it did for Glenn Miller. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, you mentioned sort of like not wanting being sort of opposed to finishing high school. What was, do you know what your thought process was there? Like what you objected to about that or was it the consequence of that or something? It's kind of hard for me to reconstruct. So, um, one of the things I've noticed, um, is that when I look back, I remember a lot of the good stuff and I remember a lot of happiness. Um, I remember all the great stuff about high school. I remember that you could kind of reinvent yourself. And I remember that at points like I was basically just doing whatever I wanted and ignoring any rule that I didn't care about and kind of exploring the ideas of counterculture. And um, I'm aware of the fact when I look back on it that I was also very unhappy and depressed at points and I didn't have a good home life. But I don't remember that viscerally. Mm-hmm. And so I think... um a lot of the objection was just the fact that I was unhappy. I didn't like, you know, rules. I didn't like people telling me what to do. Um, I wanted to, you know, I was a kid, so I wanted to have the benefits of doing the stuff that people that followed the rules did. I wanted to have the material things that all my, you know, more wealthy friends had. Um, I wanted to have college paid for. I wanted to have a car. Um, but I also wanted to be able to believe that all that was like trappings of a materialist society that I didn't want to belong in. And then I also didn't want to, you know, follow the kind of rules at home that I would have had to follow to have those material things at that age. Mm-hmm. And I think the whole high school thing kind of got tied up in that with rules that I had to follow and, things that I wanted and all I was really interested in was band, you know, by the end of high school and music. Um, and the parts, no, I guess I was interested in other stuff, but when I had rules that I had to follow to be in band also, and, you know, I mean, band was a bunch of kids who all had to, it's, it's kind of funny because being in a band, it's all about following rules and everyone mm-hmm. doing what they're supposed to do. Um, so there's, I guess, some kind of push and pull between those things. And mm-hmm. um, when that equation was no longer working for me, I just wanted out rather than to solve anything or change anything. So is it kind of like you got sort of just fed up with the thing? It's not like you were trying to make a statement by specifically not finishing high school you were just kind of i think it was i think it was a statement about identity okay um you know i mean so i wanted to like you know they had these like tours the band tours where everyone would raise money and then go on a trip and i was excluded um from a couple of them um in some cases by my parents and then in some cases 
I want to think of the last one, the senior trip, I was excluded because of my um, lack of performance or behavior. Interesting. Okay. Um, I can't remember exactly, but I, I, I want to think that I was excluded by the school from it. Mm-hmm. Not that I would have had parental buy-in at that point either. Um, so I think in my mind that was like the final straw. Like if I can't go on that band tour and if I can't be like reaping the benefits of being in the band, then I don't want to have anything to do with school. Mm-hmm. But I think part of it was also posturing, you know, like, oh, this is like really punk rock or countercultural or something to, yeah, you know, be smart and able to, you know, graduate near the top of my class and to have, you know, great SAT scores, but still walk away from high school. And, mm-hmm. you know, so, I mean, I, I, I think within a month of when I got out, I went and got a GED and took that and went, went and got enlisted in the army. Mm-hmm. So that was like that summer that you would have graduated high school is when you joined the army roughly? Um, yeah, towards that, towards the end of that summer. Okay. And then you were in the army for how long? Uh, I was on active duty for three years. Okay. And that you were stationed where most of that time? I did my basic training in Fort or in um, Fort Dix, New Jersey. I did six months of advanced training at Fort Lee, Virginia. And then I was in Bomberg, Germany for the remainder of the time. What does that advanced training mean? What, what happens there? Um, so I was a, what was uh, called a PLL clerk, 76 Charlie was the classification. I love that. Um, that's basically a motor pool clerk, um, which is a division of supply that's, you know, is responsible for keeping all the parts on hand for all the vehicles to, um, you keep an inventory of parts and order the parts you need and work with the mechanics and everyone to make sure that they have what they need to keep all the stuff running. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to a school to do that basically. Okay. Um, if I had been an infantryman, you know, I would have gone to like Fort Benning and that was 11 Bravo is their classification. And they go through, I think nine weeks or something of advanced training or that you could, you know, be anything really. That's just, it's, you have your basic training and then you have basically a training for what your vocation was going to be in, in the military. And did you pick that vocation? Did you get a choice? When I enlisted, I got a choice of, you could start with where you wanted to go and then you would choose what you would, would be doing when you got there. Mm-hmm. Um, Yes, I did choose that. So I we, wanted to go to Germany or oh, okay. Eng- I wanted to go to England or Germany. Um, okay. And that's where I started. And then they do a battery of tests. And based on your test scores, they offer you a series of jobs that you can take. I see. Um, I thought I was going to be like an ambulance dispatcher, which is something else that that same job classification could be doing. So I tried to choose a a job that was going to be rear echelon um where I could basically have a desk job, but be in the army and I wanted to be in England or Germany. Mm-hmm. Interesting. 
So is that what you ended up doing for those years you were in Germany? You were the motor pool clerk, or did your gig change? No, that was my gig, but I was ended up being in a forward-deployed unit. So I was a motor pool clerk in... And I didn't even... When I signed up for the job, I didn't even realize that they had this job in the advanced... In, you know, the frontline units as well. Okay. So, again, I thought I would be maybe in Frankfurt dispatching ambulances or you know ordering parts and then sending them to the forward deployed unit um but i ended up being in a mechanized infantry unit so what was that what was that part like like being in that unit being forward deployed in that era so they were the years we're talking about are what, middle 80s 86 to 89 okay so it was the cold war the end of the cold war um the troops in Germany were there to, you know, repel the advances of the um, Warsaw Pact nations. Okay. They were built like the post-World War II. You know, the idea was you were able to fight in Russia in the winter or in the mountains, you know, in Europe, basically, Mm -hmm. in the forest. Um. So, like, the guys that are in now, you know, I mean, basically, most of the military is geared up for desert warfare now. Everyone wears different colored uniforms, you know. It's always kind of looking back, you know, everything's desert warfare, because that's what's happened in the recent past. Mm, uh, yeah. But during the Cold War, we were looking at World War Two and imagining, like, a super World War Two, And that's what we were geared up for. How did you find the experience overall of being in the Army? I did it. It was really hard. Um, the th- like many things in life, the things that I thought would be easy were some of the hardest things, and the things that I thought would be hard either didn't exist or weren't that hard. So if you've seen movies, you think that basic training is hard because you have to climb up a rope and you know maybe fight the drill sergeant and <laughs> do a lot of push-ups. Right. That is um, what I think. And really the hard part is that you're getting yelled at a lot and you can't fight back and that you're exhausted and that you have a lot of rules to follow and you absolutely have to follow them. That's really the hard part is that all your options are gone. You just have to do what you have to do. Is that what you think the point of it is to sort of break you down and get you in yes. line. Yeah. Yes. The point of it is to break down your individuality and then reform you in a more group friendly, um, sort of configuration. <laughs> right. And it's, it's out there. Everybody, I mean, they tell you exactly what it's about, but it still works. Right. Interesting. It's the same thing. Colts do. Yes. It's the right. same thing. Armies have always I was done the same thing. It's the same thing, you know, fraternities do. It's 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 a very common way to build an organization of people. It's interesting to me that they that they sort of tell you that's what they're going to do because I think some other places try to, you know, I think we have a friend who was in what I would consider a cult for a while and I think it's sort of masked in other stuff. It's not I mean, it's exactly what they're doing, but they don't come out and say, "Here's what we're going to do. We're going to break you down. We're going to put you back together and we've got a better system." Yeah, no, that they, they, they tell you that in the Army. And that's actually part of the evil genius of it is, you know, it's 
you know, Schwarzenegger telling you he's going to, you know, kill you last. You know, I mean, it's the, they tell you exactly what's going to happen and then it happens and there's really no way around it. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, what do you think you did? There like lessons you learned or how, what do you think you learned from being in the army or how did it, if it, did it change you? Well, normally how I answer that, and I still think it's pretty true, is that I was colder than I'd ever been. I was tireder than I've ever than I'd ever been. I had, you know, unpleasant food. I had to deal with a lot of physical unpleasantness, and almost any time in life now, when something's happening to me, I can imagine having been pushed further, having been colder or hotter or tireder or angrier. And I know that I'd gotten through it. Yeah. That's very interesting. And it's definitely makes me care a lot less about, you know, how warm I am. I remember getting to college and just like the cafeteria was awesome in the dorms and everybody, you know, I, I, I also started, you know, in the, in the spring semester and everybody had been there already for a while and was tired of it. And I just couldn't understand, like my room was bigger, you know, the food was better. All I had to do was read some books and show up to class and things seemed pretty easy. Yeah. That's pretty interesting perspective shift. Especially given had I, you know, had I shown up there at 18, I wouldn't have made it a semester. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You said that's the way you usually answer the question. Do you have a different answer or an auxiliary answer or something? Um, I'm suspicious of when I have a stock answer. Yeah. It's often practiced and yeah, it's easy to start believing it after a while. Mm-hmm. Um, as with other things, I was pretty unhappy when I was in the army. Um, I, for maybe the first couple years I was in Germany, I wanted nothing more than to find a way to get kicked out without it, you know, destroying my permanent record or without me ending up in jail. Mm-hmm. And then when I got to the home stretch, um, I had to try and make it through long enough to get my benefits, even though I'd poisoned the well for, you know, the time I'd been there before. Yeah. Um, a running theme you may have noticed is I didn't really like rules when I was a kid, yet I had, you know, put myself in a situation where I was bowled into a lot of rules. Um, also, we spent a lot of time in the field, so I wasn't even you know, in, in the barracks and going out to the bars and stuff like that. You know, a lot of the time I was, you know, out out living in a, you know, um, field housing, which could be tents or more often would be like kind of just barracks that were built during world war two. Um, so I guess that isn't really learning anything. I guess I learned that I didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> That's something I think. Um, she talked a little about, uh, you made reference to, to playing music. So you pl- the, talk about the instruments, you know how to play and, and so I play saxophone. Um, I started around when I was like eight, I think 
nine, something like that. And um, for a long time, that was kind of central to my identity, my or my idea of self. Mm-hmm. Um, in college, I played a lot. I played, you know, hours a day. Um, in during a lot of high school, I played a lot. And then later on in life, I played less and less until um, I had basically stopped at some point. And then I restarted um, a little over a year ago. Played a lot for a while. I've been playing less recently. So it's kind of, it's still kind of at the center of who I think I am. But it's it's interesting that I don't actually, or I've spent long stretches of time not engaging in doing anything that makes me a musician even though i think of myself as one and i think i listen to music like a musician and feel like i'm a part of it when people are in bands and feel like i have a special understanding of it yeah can you talk a little about that shift like was it a thing where you think other things became more prominent in your sense of self or was it that you made a shift in terms of maybe wanting to have music as a, as a career versus how to work it into a life where it's not the career? Like what, what do you think was going on there? Well, I think when I was very young, I assumed that I was going to be a rock star somehow. Um, I never really did anything to achieve it. Um, I don't feel it. like, um, so I don't know. I, I expected someone to hand that to me. Um, that was how I felt when I was maybe 16, 18, like a lot of kids do who, who play an instrument or want to play an instrument at that age. Um, during the time I was in the army, I saved up my checks and I bought a nice new saxophone and I played a lot. And I assumed when I got out, I would somehow become a rock star. Um, and then when I got out and went to college, once again, I made the decision to not, I took music classes, but I didn't, um, join the music college. I stayed in liberal arts general and kind of hovered around music, um, which is turning into a, a recurring theme now that I look back at it. Um, and then I started to play a lot and I played a lot with bands but then again, I never started my own band. I had all these ideas about music that I wanted to do. And at one point after college, I worked with, you know, you and some other friends and actually got a lot of that down on tape. Um, and that was really, I guess I've had a few different times when I've done that, where I've gone through periods of actually recording stuff. In between, there's always years and years when I'm thinking about stuff and imagining stuff and almost recording stuff or almost writing stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, to answer your question, I mean, I guess there's always been this push and pull, I guess. there's um, I've wanted to do it, but I haven't wanted to put in the work. Um, and then kind of like exercise or other personal habits. Like once you stop 
working hard at music, it gets easier and easier to not do it. Mm-hmm. And it gets harder and harder to pick it back up again for me. So I didn't, I, I, I guess I've always made the conscious decision to not make it a career. Um, I've waited for someone else to hand me a career. Um, when I, when I finished college, I kind of briefly had a career in dishwashing and then I kind of got into doing lighting and sound. Um, the stated reason was so I would kind of be around the industry and I could make money off something music related while, you know, waiting for my break or whatever was going to happen. And then after a while, that was kind of hard, dangerous, um, unsteady work. And I got a line on an office job and started doing that and kind of got further and further away from the music stuff. Do you, so I guess I'll say one thing, my perception of you is that whether or not you're actively practicing an instrument on a regular basis or not, I feel like your musicianship and your orientation to music is kind of always there. It doesn't, that stuff is to me sort of a separate issue in my conception of you. Um, so I feel like the music is always there. It's right. You know, it's always accessible. Um, that part of you, um, do you feel that way or like when you're not playing, do you feel like you're not really a music person anymore? Do you still feel it? Oh yes. It's central to my self identity is the fact that I'm a musician. Mm -hmm. I kind of feel like I have to explain that I am in times when I'm not practicing the art. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think it's at the center, in my conception of myself, I think it's interesting that in your conception, you know, that that you see me that way too. Yeah, absolutely. Because I kind of, sometimes I, you know, I just think like that's just something I think about myself that nobody else sees when I'm not doing it. Yeah, no, it definitely doesn't. I will be aware, I think, in some cases of when you are, kind of more active in terms of your, you know, your technical skills or whatever, but it doesn't change the fundamental. That's a detail. That's not a, that's not the essence of the thing. Um, are you, I mean, when you think about other people and they say, I do this or, you know, I, I do some painting, I do some drawing, I write some stories so do you think about them in terms of like, well, are you doing that right now? Or how many paintings have you made lately? Or do you sort of feel like, yeah, if they say that's part of them, then they do it sometimes. That's, that's part of them. Um, I think the latter mm-hmm. is, is how I see it. I think it's, yeah, I mean, so yeah, I know people who are lawyers and that's like kind of a part of their identity. I also know people who practice law who I don't think of as lawyers. Mm-hmm. But right. I, I know people who, you know, that's what they are. They're lawyers. And, and whether they're lawyering or not, that's just their personality. My wife is a designer and that's whether she's designing something or not. That's the perspective that she sees the world through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, do you... Like when you think about, I can certainly 
understand the perspective of, you know, thought they, they for example, music career was going to materialize and stuff, and it didn't. Is that a source of disappointment or regret for you, or do you just feel like? No. Um, so I've always had a push and pull of thinking that I was going to have that as a career, but never wanting to have it as a career. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I chose not to try and be involved in music in the military, which would have been a, a wise career move. Um, when I was in college on the GI bill, I didn't try and be a music major each time I was thinking that's going to ruin music for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the truth is, and, and basically when, by the time I started working in advertising, my stated objective was to have a job that wasn't involved in music so I could afford the toys that I needed to do music on my own. Mm-hmm. So I could buy the recording gear so I could, you know, have the instruments I needed, right. have the opportunities to play music and have it be my own thing. So I'm, that was a very conscious path. Now, I still kind of always expected someone to, you know, come along and scoop you up, scoop me up tell me I was going to be a rock star and make me a rock star. But I never, I guess, actively wanted that or tried to do it. And I saw you over years being in bands, doing gigs, you know, and I kind of wish I had done more in that direction. I, I'm realizing as I get older that the thing that's, um, the thing that attracts me and the thing that I'm disappointed about not doing is the collaborative part of it, the playing in bands, the playing with people. Um, there was, there was a period while I was working at Leo Burnett where our friend Robert Horn would have a jam session every Saturday night and the communication, the, playing with people whether it's super loose and um improvisational or whether it's that thing where you're working on stuff together you know like we used to do in high school and in the kind of musical experiences i had in college um both of those have huge benefits and that that's my regret my regret is that i'm not playing music with other people i don't really care if it's a career or what the context is. Yeah, that's really interesting because I am, especially recently, that's kind of really, for me, the focus. It doesn't really matter if there's an audience or not or if it's me and you in a room or a few people in a room that's just as satisfying and there's no, um, I'm not looking at it transactionally or like where it's going to get to next. It's just, for the enjoyment of the thing at the time. So, yeah. And the lack of chops, I, I, um, bemoan my lack of chops more because I can't play in some situations. I can't say yes to mm-hmm. a gig that I'm going to fall flat on. That's why, that's why I'm mad that, you know, I don't have chops. Our, our friend Paul, you know, like, when I mentioned I was going to be in Wisconsin and said, Oh, bring your horn. I play at this place every Friday night, you know, I'm, Mm -hmm. and to me, that means I would have to woodshed a few tunes hard for like a couple of weeks and not be able to 
you know, as I, in, in, you know, a long time ago, I would have been able to read a lead sheet or, you know, represent myself well in a kind of jam session kind of, um, right. surroundings, but I don't have those chops right now. And that, that's the part that, that I regret. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, right. But you still have the, the ideas and the sensibility and all that, but you maybe don't have some of the tools to get them out in certain settings. Yep. Yep. Um, when you think about playing music, do you think, I mean, obviously you talked about, um, the communing with people musically, um, as being sort of the focal point of your enjoyment of it. Are there specific times, gigs, things that you think of as sort of like highlights? Like, yeah, that's when it was really, it was really enjoyable. Or it was really good. Um, I'm trying to think, I mean, basically a lot of times when I've done it, it's, it's a highlight. Um, so for instance, the Christmas gigs, mm -hmm. um, there were someone I felt prepared, someone I didn't feel prepared, someone I just was getting up and winging it somewhere. I sang backgrounds on a couple songs somewhere. I was on stage the whole time. All of those were huge highlights. Many of them were also stressful in the preparation or in execution. Right. I'm trying to think of like, when it was all good, you know, when it was sure, I guess the anticipation part of it, you know, is always stressful for me. And that's part of the joy probably. Mm -hmm. Um, I gotta say some of the jazz band concerts in high school, um, were amazing. And some of the concert band, um, you know, especially towards then we, we did some contests where we played some difficult music where I really applied myself to learning it. Um, some of the jazz band things were amazing. Um, some of, you know, playing with bands in college when I really felt like I was at the top of my game, not, um, well, I guess my technical chops were pretty good then, but mm -hmm. I felt like during that period, um, from college and the few years afterwards that I was never going to get up and fall flat. Um, I might not be awesome, but during my late twenties, you know, mid, mid to late twenties, I felt like I could always, it was always going to be good. Mm -hmm. you, you could hang, you could, yeah. you could cut it. Whereas now it's, now I have doubts. It's interesting. You talk about those, you know, concert band or jazz band things. Cause I think there's something about the starting with a, a piece that you can't actually execute working on it for a period of time and then being able to execute it both individually and as an ensemble. That's pretty satisfying and that you don't get when you're in sort of the standard, I'm generalizing, right, but the kind of standard like rock band or I'm sitting in with somebody thing, you don't have that experience of workshopping something over a long period of time and yeah. having it come to fruition. Well, I think it's definitely possible in the rock band scenario when sure. you're doing it right. Um, but I've never been in that kind of rock band. I was always sitting in in someone's band or showing up. and Right, as opposed to constructing something and refining it and refining it. Yeah, our friend um, Steve Slivka's band, Woo Woo Stick, um, 
he described how I think this was just out of college or whatever. These were guys who were music majors. They were really into it. And he would talk about they all lived together and they would have like sectional rehearsals. Like they did it just like high school and college. They would have right. like the rhythm section would be working in one room and the guitarist would be working in another room and then they would bring it together. And so they actually approached it right in that way. Interesting. And lately, since I've picked the horn back up, I've been you know, going, starting at the fundamentals and doing exactly what you described, you know, like picking up a piece of music that I couldn't possibly play. And over the course of months, you know, getting to the point where I could play it. How has that been? Like, just how do you feel about that experience of, of kind of relearning and going back to that kind of practice routine and stuff? It was awesome. And I've definitely fallen off the wagon now, unfortunately. So it's been months, but, um, I had a good, six nine month run where i was playing every day and um i came at it wanting to learn the fundamental fundamentals and the stuff that i faked my way through early on mm-hmm. and i actually i picked up my horn a couple of weeks ago for the first time in a couple of months um and i could still play through the major scales and i could still like I lost the embouchure a little bit from not practicing, but I, the stuff that I had been working on with Chris Green for the last year, I didn't lose, and I could, you know, still play the tunes that I was working on and stuff. So that's that's a strong positive. That learning the fundamentals really is taking. That's cool. Did you going back to learn the fundamentals? Did it seem like frustrating? Or I've been here before. Were you excited to be back there? Or like, how did that feel? Um, it was frustrating that I couldn't do it. Um, the truth is that I never was there before I could fake it. Um, you know, I learned the major scales when I had, you know, I would cram on them when I had an audition to do. I never internalized them the way that I should have. Mm -hmm. I always played by ear too much and not with my brain enough. So I knew what the cycle of fourths was because I could hum what the fourth was, but I couldn't necessarily write it down without, you know, thinking about it or moving my fingers. Whereas this time around I had to do it from my head and do it from the music, you know, from the written page. Did that seem helpful? Like, do you think that's a more, a better way to do it? I don't know if it was a better way. It was doing it a second way. Um, Mm -hmm. I knew I could always get my ear back. I knew that, you know, the improv stuff would come back if I played a lot because I stopped playing and started playing again. And I knew that would always come back. Right. I never knew for sure that I could do the fundamentals and, and get that stuff. And now I know I can. And even though intellectually I knew all I had to do was work at it. Now I've been through some of that and that's, that's cool to come at it from the other way. Was it hard to find the time to to practice, or was it? Yes. Yeah. What was your approach to that? Because I think there's a lot of. I mean, I know a lot of people that have things they want to do or creative things they want to pursue or whatever you want to call them, and it's hard to. It doesn't seem like. I mean, everybody feels like they kind of don't have that much time. So. Yeah, um, and that's what I'm fighting now again, but. Uh, like exercising it's just a matter of working into your routine i think um i actually 
made a, you know, Google form where I recorded how much I practiced and I practiced an hour a day. And then it just became the, at the end of work every day. You know, I work from home most of the time. Um, but at five o'clock every day, I would just stop and then play for an hour before I made dinner for my family. Yeah. So you, once you built it, once you got it into the routine, it was easier to maintain. Yeah. And then when I was on the road, I have a, a MIDI sax and I would bring that with me and play that in the hotel room after the day of work. I think that's the E-Dongus. The E-Dongus. The skin flute. Um, do you still... Do you listen to as much music as you used to? What's your no. music listening habits? No. I listen to much less music than I used to. And I listen to it um, much less actively than I used to. Yeah, I know... I think a lot of people have the same thing. I definitely do. Do you ever sit down and just put on a record or something and listen to it? Yes. Without doing something else? Yes. You do? Okay. I do. And in fact, um, you know, I mean, I don't have the time to do that a lot, but um, it's hard for me to listen to music in the background now um, because I want to listen to it. Yeah. So I often just leave music off. I don't I don't have music on when I'm working. When I was at the agency working nights, um the last the last year I was um working at um the agency, I had a swing shift. So I would start at 3 and then everyone would leave at 5 and then I would crank tunes while I was working. You'd start at 3 in the afternoon. Yeah. Okay. And I did that for a little over a year. Um and but now now I don't do that. I don't put on music while I'm working because I just want to stop working and listen to music. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I um, have been actively listening to music that is related to what I was, um, you know, working on with the saxophoning. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of listening back to jazz trying to like listen to stuff that i would then try and learn how to play as well um and then yeah i've gone back lately when you know the wife and kid are out and i'm alone with the place i'll put on some loud music sometimes stuff i haven't listened to for years you know that's a great thing about like spotify now like i can think like Oh yeah, I used to really like King's X, you know, and it's the kind of thing I haven't listened to, you know, since like the nineties, but I can just find it and crank it up and listen to it and see if it's like I remembered it. So that's, it brings up an interesting idea. So you talk a little about what, what bands, um, resonated with you when you first started listening to music and when I first started listening to music, um, my father listened to a show called the midnight special that was on WFMT at midnight on, I think Saturdays or Sundays. And he would record it on a Tanberg reel to reel deck and then listen back to it all week. And it was a show built around um, the folk music scene 
the Chicago singer songwriter scene. I think it might have been started by Studs Terkel, although he wasn't doing the show, okay. at, you know, during that era. Um, so it was, you know, Dylan, Woody Guthrie, um, show tunes, Jim Croce, Steve Goodman. Um, this whole kind of vibrant Chicago singer songwriter scene was what it was centered around. And that's what I remember like early on listening to, um, the, you were how old ish then from birth that was always, always playing in the house. Mm -hmm. Um, at some point my brother got into the Beatles and I remember he had some Beatles compilations that he would listen to. And then the first things that I remember really resonating with me, um, the, um, was uh, Elton John, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Um, and uh, Dark Side of the Moon, which was, my father used to play that a lot. And this is when those came out, essentially, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and then um, when the movie Tommy came out, we had the soundtrack album from Tommy and that was at the center of my music listening for a lot of years. So that's 1975-ish, is that what that is? Okay. Yeah, somewhere around then. Okay. So did you, were there particular bands that you, or artists that you gravitated to or was it just individual songs that you responded to at that point? Like did you did you have a sense of like I like this person's body of work or was yeah, it just definitely. I like this song and I like that no, song? No, I liked Elton John, I like Pink Floyd, I like the Beatles. Okay. Um and you thought of it in that way. Yeah. Okay. I liked um I guess the folk music stuff it was more song by song. Mm-hmm. Just because that was how it was presented to me. Yeah. Um I think the first record I actively had that was mine was Kiss Destroyer. Nice. Oh. Forgot you were a Kiss guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so was... Uh, did you have a band or bands? Like, was there one where you really latched onto and you're like, this... Not only do I like the songs, but this says something to me or something about me being into this. Early on, um, I would say probably Elton John. I mean, I considered myself an Elton John fan and everything by him right. spoke to me. Yeah. Um, later on, you know, The Who definitely was mm-hmm. a huge thing. Um, David Bowie was huge. And then later, you know, like during high school or whatever, I mean, there was a series of things that I would, you know, discover that, um, suicidal tendencies, um, made a huge impression on me. Um, Iggy pop, the specials when I first heard them in high school was a huge thing. How about now? Like current day, do you feel that you have, that there are any bands that not just that you like, but that resonate with you in that, in that same way, or is your relationship to it different? You mean 
kind of current bands? As no, not necessarily current bands, but bands that you currently, in your current state, mm-hmm. feel like... Oh, yeah. But there's a huge number of them. That I mean, you're deep into, and you feel like it's that's your thing. Yeah, well, definitely... Um, like Coltrane, um, I wouldn't call myself like a scholar of Coltrane like a lot of people. Right. Um, like a lot of people would call themselves. Yes. Um, definitely speaks to me. Um, the Modern Jazz Quartet, um, Thelonious Monk, um, and then um, The Police, Old Genesis, Peter Gabriel. Um, I've, I've discovered that I was a Rush fan maybe a decade ago or so I, I came to the conclusion that like I had more albums by rush than, and this was kind of before the streaming era where like the CDs you had or everything. Mm-hmm. I noticed that I had a lot of rush CDs more than like by the who, which I, you know, the who was definitely kind of one of my muses. Yeah. And I realized I had more, more of Rush's catalog than, a lot of bands I thought I liked more than Rush. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, I always lived with people who had great music collections. So during my 20s, I never went out and got the Who's catalog because right. I always lived with people that had everything by the police and the Who and sure. you know Genesis. But I definitely actively collected Rush. Interesting. The... Um you feel like there's a band or a song or an album or something that that really is like key to you for a specific era that you really identify yes um quadrophenia by the who is if i had to identify an album that saved my life right um i think it saved many lives that one yeah to me yeah if i think about basically high school Mm mm-hmm that that album is is there mm-hmm. um pink floyd animals is in that same kind of space for me okay kind of if i think about like the most like kind of raw open you know that i've ever been like that's kind of the music the that, that's playing yeah the soundtrack yeah. for it interesting do you have what uh, I think Vinay referred to as a secret personal anthem? I was talking once with him about uh, the song. I think it was maybe Roll With The Changes by Ario Speedwagon. And he identified, he's like, that was my secret personal anthem at one time. Do you have one of those currently? I mean, I'm sure you've had them at yeah. other points. Um, I don't think I do. Uh-huh. Nothing comes to mind. Yeah. But you probably, do you feel like you've had that at other points? Oh, for sure. Like there's a song that's your soundtrack for that week or month or year or whatever. For sure. For sure. Thanks again for listening to this part of my discussion with BA on What Else. And thanks again to the Chicago Podcast Cooperative and to our sponsor, Cards Against Humanity. Uh, there's a number of other great shows on the Chicago Podcast Cooperative. 
I'll suggest one of them here. Uh, it's a podcast called, this is a great name, <laughs> Tight Pencils. Uh, Tight Pencils is a show that explores the process of making art. Matt and Kevin sit down with a maker, cartoonist, painter, or designer to find out about their work and what inspires them to create. So check out Tight Pencils, the podcast, and uh, come back and visit with us again at What Else. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.